Welcome to another TeachingAmericanHistory.org webinar, sponsored by the Ashbrook Center at Ashland University. TH.org is the leading online resource for documents-based study of American history, government, and civics for teachers, students, and citizens. Okay, thanks. Well, welcome everyone to this month's TeachingAmericanHistory.org Saturday webinar sponsored by the Ashbrook Center at Ashland University. TAH.org is the leading online resource for documents-based study of American history, government, and civics for teachers, students, and citizens. I'm Chris Burkett, Associate Professor of Political Science and History and co-chair of our Master of Arts in American History and Government program here at Ashland University. The theme of this year's webinars is landmark Supreme Court cases. Some of you have joined us for these before, but for those of you who are joining us for the first time, let me just explain that the, our purpose is to pull together some thoughtful scholars and have a conversation about um, 10 historically important Supreme Court cases. And we encourage all of you to join us in that conversation by submitting questions via the chat box, and we will try to get to as many of those questions as possible. In the next week, you'll receive an email with a link to request a certificate of participation, as well as a link to the archived video and audio from today's program. We've also pasted a short, uh, or a link to a short survey in the chat box, and we would appreciate it if you could take a minute to complete it. It will help us determine which weekday would work best as far as scheduling a special webinar series in the spring. So if you don't mind, take a few minutes and answer I think there are three questions, and it will help us um, figure out a, the best time possible to schedule our spring special webinar series. So to help us think about our topics uh, this year, these Supreme Court cases, of course, we're drawing from speeches, letters, writings, other documents from Ashbrook Center's extensive collection of documents, again, available at TAH.org. And the subject of today's program is Dred Scott v. Sanford, decided in 1857, and we're very fortunate to have with us uh, as panelists today, Lucas Morell, who is Professor of Ethics and Politics at Washington and Lee University, and Jonathan White, Associate Professor of American Studies at Christopher Newport University. Good morning to you both, and thanks for joining us. Thank Good you. Morning. 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 Um, I'll start with a broad question. Uh, maybe maybe um, to help teachers who maybe are teaching this for their first time, for the first time to their own students, maybe we should start with, if one of you or both of you don't mind, give us the background on the case and um, maybe talk about how it got to the Supreme Court. And I'd like to know also, why did it take so long for a case like this to get before the Supreme Court? Why did it take 60, <laughs> 70 years for a case like this to get to the Supreme Court? Would either of you mind giving us the background on the case here? Uh, I can, can jump in. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> Go ahead, John. Do that. So Dred Scott was a slave of an army doctor. And if anyone who's listening grew up in a military family or isn't in, in a military family, you know that if you're in a military family, you travel around a lot. And it was no different in the 19th century. And so Dred Scott's master took him into free states and free territories up to Illinois and up to places that are now in Wisconsin and Minnesota. And when Dred Scott returned to Missouri, where he had been living before that, he sued in the Missouri state courts for his freedom. And generally what had happened in the early 19th century 
was that if a slave from Missouri was taken into free soil and then returned to Missouri, the, the slave would be set free by the courts. They could make the claim that because they'd been taken into free territory, they were now free. The, the composition of the Missouri state court system or Supreme Court changed, though, by the time Dred Scott's case came before the state Supreme Court. So he started in a lower level state court, appealed all the way up to a state Supreme Court. And at that point, the state Supreme Court said, well, times have changed. Now we have abolitionists around. They didn't say it quite this crassly, but now we have abolitionists around and, and it's it would be unsafe to start or to keep freeing slaves. And so Dred Scott was declared still a slave. At that point, or by that point, his master had died, and he was now owned by a man in New York. Now, under the Constitution, a person can sue in the federal courts if they're suing someone from another state that's known as diversity jurisdiction. And so Dred Scott brought his case now into the federal court system, whereas the first time it had been in the state court system. And he was able to do that because he was suing a New Yorker. And it was through that process that it then reached the US Supreme Court and was then decided in 1857. I think that's an excellent summary, John. Uh, let me just add a few things here. Uh, some of you might be thinking, good grief, why would a Southern slave state recognize uh, the de facto manumission or freeing of a slave simply because they were taken out of a slave state into a free state or free territory, and upon their return, why wouldn't they just re-enslave them? Uh, basically, the idea was, look, we want to provide a disincentive for any slaveholder to remove his slave from a slave state and go into a place where they get to see free blacks. Uh, if they're free, somewhere else is that where they get infected by liberty and taking them back to a southern state. We don't need slaves who have experienced freedom or have seen other people or have read or heard about freedom uh, coming back and spreading that gospel, if you will, uh, at home. And so even southern states, including, as John pointed out, Missouri, their tradition uh, there can, uh, by tradition, I mean uh, precedents, even in state courts, had ruled that if something very much like what happened to Dred Scott occurred, if he came back to Missouri up until about 1850, they had ruled in two separate uh, cases uh, in 1824 and in 1836 that, uh, that that person who used to be a slave in their state uh, had become free. Uh, simply by taking up permanent residence with their owner in a free state or free territory. Uh, so although that might look counterintuitive to us today, uh, they actually um, uh, pursued that line of thinking uh, actually to reinforce slaveholding, not because they had, uh, out of the kindness of their hearts, they wanted slaves that had left their state and returned uh, to experience freedom on the home front. So I uh, just thought I would, I would point That's that out. That's fascinating. So that really does a couple of things. It really accentuates the extent to which the slave, slave owner, or the, those who were in the slave states understood the need to uh, keep slaves um, shielded from, as you put, liberty, as you put it, Lucas, liberty, which is, and keep them ignorant of, of the possibility that they could even live a free life. But what it, so what would happen? Do you know what would happen to the slaves who would come back to a place like Missouri and were freed? Would they, they would, be encouraged to leave? Uh, in Missouri, you could be a free black in Missouri. In you fact, could you could. So you in could. fact, okay. 
Yeah, in fact, uh, uh, as John pointed out, after the case is ruled in um, March or uh, March, April, May, depending on what date you cite, once uh, the case rules against, the court rules against Dred Scott, uh, his owner eventually frees him, frees him, I think, in May, and he resides in St. Louis for another year, and then he dies, and then his wife Harriet dies, They, as best they can figure out, figure out around 1870. So there are free blacks in the state of Missouri. Okay. That's fascinating. So, so if I'm understanding this correctly, the, the, the short answer to why it took so long to become a federal case uh, or a Supreme Court case is that most of the states just handled this on their own state judicial levels. Because Absolutely. They wanted to, they wanted to maintain, maintain a degree of control, yeah, a lot of the, control over the Yeah, the, the, the doctrine generally stated, and the best guy on this is a historian by the name of uh, James Oakes, who wrote a book called Freedom National. And the, the, the principle generally was freedom national, slavery local. Uh, and so it took a court case like this one to try to make slavery national, if you will, according to some interpretation of the federal national constitution. Uh, but generally speaking, uh, the idea was slavery was an exception to the rule. The assumption was freedom unless a state, given our federal system, unless a state chose uh, to uh, approve of slavery. So, so how did the how did the fugitive slave law of I think it was 1793, right? How did the fugitive slave law did that have any bearing on these kinds of cases, or or maybe Dred Scott's case in particular? Well, quickly, there were two Fugitive Slave Acts. The first one was 1793, and that was most famously and notoriously revised in 1850 as part of the compromise measures of 1850. So uh, could you repeat your question? Sorry. Well, I was just wondering how, how the Fugitive Slave Law then, um, affected, um, did it have any bearing, direct bearing on the case of Dred Scott? I don't, I don't think no. it had any bearing on this case because he wasn't a runaway slave. He Correct. had been taken ah, by okay. his master. Correct. Okay. There so was an important case in 1842 involving the Fugitive Slave Act of 1793 called Prigg versus Pennsylvania. And in that case, the Supreme Court held that the federal government was responsible to help in the recapture of fugitive slaves. Right, and, and I think one of you had recommended that as a reading today, so it's on the sort of recommended list oh, of good. readings for today. So, so that in that case, that was, uh, can, you, can you explain the significance of that case? Sure. With regard to um, the Fugitive Slave Law? That, so the Fugitive Slave Act of 1793 was very vague. It didn't really specify who was responsible to recapture fugitive slaves. And in I, I don't know, the 1830s, I suppose, a woman fled to Pennsylvania, and she took with her her children, who were also slaves. And then while she was in Pennsylvania, she conceived and had another child. Now, Pennsylvania had a personal liberty law that made it more difficult for a slave catcher or a, a master to reclaim their, their former slave. And so a slave catcher, a professional slave catcher named Edward Prigg came up to Pennsylvania tried to be able to take this woman and her children back into bondage, was not given permission to do so because of Pennsylvania's law. And so he essentially kidnapped them and took them back into slavery. The case ended up going to the Supreme Court and Joseph Story handed down the opinion of the court. And Story essentially argued that because the constitution has a fugitive slave provision, 
that clearly the national government is responsible to help in the recapture of fugitive slaves. It's interesting that Chief Justice Taney actually wrote a concurring opinion in that case. And Story had said in his opinion that the states were not responsible, northern states were not responsible to help in the recapture of fugitive slaves. Tawney wrote a concurring opinion saying, no, actually, I think the states are also responsible. Oh, and so you can see Tawney taking a very strong pro-slavery stance there about 15 years before Dred Scott would come down. Because, if, yeah, that's very interesting because, because the language of the slavery, the, the fugitive slave clause in the Constitution and the language of the 1793 Fugitive Slave Act, it really did, I, I always assumed that it put the burden almost entirely on the slave owner. Right, it's very vague, and yeah. notably, as Lincoln points out, refers to fugitive slaves not as slaves but as persons. So by 1750, with the 17 1850. I'm sorry, 1850. I'm a century ahead or behind. Right. Uh, <laughs> so by 1850, what was the effect of the 1850? Right. So the 1850 law was a law that really had teeth in it, and it had several provisions that really made it much easier to recapture fugitive slaves and also to take in free blacks who maybe had never been slaves. So first, it authorized a lower federal court official known as a commissioner to be judges in these cases. And the idea there was federal judges are these very elite people. They, they're austere. They have life tenure. We don't want them doing the dirty work of returning fugitive slaves. And then within the law itself, there were a number of provisions that made it much harder for a, an accused fugitive to be set free. In the first case, a commissioner got paid $10 if he found the accused fugitive to be a, a fugitive. He only got paid $5 if he found the accused fugitive to actually be a free person. In another uh, provision of the law, anyone who was standing by was bound by law to, uh, to assist in the recapture of fugitive slaves. And finally, the law didn't allow accused fugitives to testify on their own behalf. So if you were a free black born in Vermont and you get arrested and, and charged with being an accused fugitive slave, you can't testify in court and say, wait a second, I, I was born in the North. I've never been a slave in my life. You're you're completely you know, at the at the mercy of the court and hoping that someone else can testify on your behalf. But the cards were really stacked against African-Americans under the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850 in a way that hadn't been the case in, under the 1793 law. Yeah, that, that's really fascinating. So uh, and I know this is only maybe tangentially or not at least directly related to, to the Dred Scott case. But mm -hmm. do you do we did, did Tawney have a chance to write a decision or write an opinion on the case involving the 1850 Fugitive Slave Act? Do we know? I don't think any case ever. Well, no, actually, I'm sorry. That's I'm not, I'm wrong about that. There was a case in 1859 um, that involved Wisconsin, and Wisconsin. It was a case called Abelman versus Booth, and oh, Wisconsin right. had tried to pass a law that would essentially be a personal liberty type law, in contra contravention of the 1850 Fugitive Slave Act. And Tawney ruled in that case, saying that the states could not interfere with the the carrying out of of a federal statute like that. And that seems to then he seems to be consistent in that decision, and the Prigg decision, or his opinion, concurring opinion in Prigg. At least it seems to be a similar. I know they're different laws, but 
Well, in both cases, he wants the states to be acting in a pro-slavery way. So in Prigg, he says states should have to help enforce the fugitive slave law. And then in in uh, Abelman versus Booth, he says the states can't interfere with the carrying out of the fugitive slave law. I see. Can I, can I ask a question, if you don't mind, really quickly from um, from Larry uh, wants to know on what basis do we know on what basis Tawney argued in Prigg that the state should also be responsible for or more responsible, have a more active role in returning slaves? Yeah. Um... Let me see. I have it in front of me here. He says, in the opinion, he says it is only necessary to state the provision of this law in order to show how ineffectual and delusive is the remedy provided by Congress if state authority is forbidden to come to its aid. So in a sense that because the law was so vague, you need the states to participate in the recapture of fugitive slaves. I see. Okay. I think uh, I would just add, as a matter of, of common expectation and practice, uh, the term for this is comity, C-O-M-I-T-Y, where in a federal system, if uh, the laws of one state um, uh, accomplish some objective, for example, if you get married in uh, Ohio and you and your wife travel to another state, that state isn't going to say you guys are unlawfully cohabiting because you did not get married in our state. We are going to accept that that legal action will have legal effect here, even though we were, it wasn't the product of our laws or our courts. Similarly, or right. to, to look at the criminal statutes, if you have a fugitive from justice, let's say somebody commits a theft or murder and escapes one state and goes into another, the expectation of the original state is that the governor and the magistrates of the state that the escapee has fled to, that, that that government is going to help extradite that person so that he can be tried in the state where he committed the offense. So if you notice the language in the Constitution that deals with fugitive slaves, even though the word slave is not used, also deals with fugitives from justice. Uh, so the, the, the analogy or the parallel reasoning is there. This is a fairly commonplace, conventional, long-standing, traditional expectation of either countries to countries, or in our case, states to states. If somebody has done something wrong, they can't go across the state line and go, nanny, 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 you can't catch me. Uh, they're going to expect that that government actually extradites that person and helps bring them back. I see. But Lucas, you mentioned the the, the, the fugitive slave and the fugitive from justice clause in the Constitution. And, and maybe before we sort of circle back to the specifics of the um, Dred Scott uh, case, what, wh why do you think there are two separate clauses? I mean, they, uh, they're based on a kind of similar sense of comedy, as you say, right? Right. Uh, I think it, it was simply, I mean, I, don't, I haven't looked at that history recently, but I think it was simply a, a demand and expectation uh, explicitly. Uh, the concern for, for, for the delegates at the Constitutional Convention from South Carolina and Georgia in particular, uh, they, were, they needed to, to gain a new lease on life for their institution of slavery. And they wanted that explicitly in the deed so that um, their institution of slavery wouldn't be undermined in at least the foreseeable future. So uh, it was either, you know, give us this plus some other provisions like the three-fifths clause uh, and the 1808 provision that Congress could not ban the importation of slaves before uh, 1808. 
they, they extracted that uh, as a minority cohort of the Constitutional Convention and saying, basically, if you want us to cooperate, uh, you got to give us this or something along these lines or we walk. I'll just add one thing to that. And the section about a person charged in any state with treason, felony or other crime, that section is actually drawn word for word out of the Articles of Confederation. And so they, they plucked that out of a pre-existing document, but then they added the fugitive slave clause. Yeah, and I guess that, that's interesting because that, how, you, how you answer the question, why did they add it as a separate clause, could affect the views of, I suppose, future justices like Tawny, should they ever be called upon to decide on this. Because on the one hand, I can see, uh, I've, I've heard the argument that they broke that clause out of, they, they broke the fugitive from justice, no, they broke the fugitive slave clause out from the fugitive from justice clause as a way to distinguish the character of criminals who have, who have acted contrary to justice and hmm. slaves who, had, who were fleeing not justice but laws. So, I, so I've, I've read that there are delegates at the convention who wanted to make a distinction between justice on the one hand and laws on the other. And I also noticed that in the language of the two clauses that, the, that there's a much more obligatory sense, if you will, of the language of the Fugitive from Justice Clause in terms of yes. what states must do, right? Whereas right, the, the executive end, authority is explicitly mentioned when it comes right. to the treason felony part, and it's not mentioned at all. Um, it just says, yeah, it's just not mentioned at all when it comes to the right. Fugitive Slave Clause. The Fugitive Slave Clause says, shall be delivered up, I think, on claim of the party, which means that there's probably going to be some procedural things that have to take place in order to get right. the slave back, right? Right. But on the other hand, I have heard the point you were making, Lucas, which is that the reason that South Carolina and Georgia delegates at the convention went along with breaking those two clauses out because they actually did get a kind of explicit protection of slavery that they might not otherwise have had had it just been assumed that that the, the uh, requirement to return slaves was subsumed somehow under the requirement to return fugitives from justice. So it's just an interesting problem from the very beginning in the Constitution about yep. what to do with fugitive slaves. Does it require active, um, you know, obligatory actions on the part of the states, or is it is the burden placed on uh, those who are trying to rec uh, return or recapture uh, their former slaves? We have a great, great question from Janet. She wants to know about the provision in the Northwest Ordinance regarding uh, free soil and new territories. Uh, why didn't that become void with the passage of the or ratification of the Constitution? It was renewed under the first Congress. Oh, so it was repassed, right? Right. Correct. Okay, good. So, so I guess then my the next natural question is, what bearing did the Northwest Ordinance have on the Dred Scott decision? Well, the dissent cited it. Uh, okay. So, I mean, but they were outnumbered. <laughs> right. <laughs> Seven to two. That's a, practically a slam dunk in, in Supreme, I mean, it's not a split decision. I mean, two's, two's pretty small. Yeah. Does Tawny recognize at all the, the, the language of the Northwest Ordinance in his, in his opinion? Do you know? Oh, good grief. It is such a long opinion I a long that I, I can't recall. John, do you recall if he even, uh, Tawny's really interesting, and he, he's a guy who, who neglects the most powerful arguments against his position. Right. Um, just a quick historical <laughs> point here. When he first issued the uh, ruling, it was in March of 1857, and the tradition was that if you are the majority uh, uh, writer of the opinion, 
that by your volition, you can decide to actually read word for word <laughs> your opinion, which Tani, he's really old at this point and he's barely audible. And so he reads for hours this opinion, and but he doesn't release the opinion for another couple of months. The dissenters in particular, Benjamin Curtis demands, you know, this is, you know, we're supposed to circulate our opinions and see what we're saying and whatnot. And Tani absolutely refuses to give a fellow justice a copy of his opinion. The following day, after Tani reads his opinion but doesn't release it even to the clerk or to the press, both McLean and Curtis publish their opinions. And Tani looks at those, and even though he knows their strongest opinions against his, he revises his opinion and adds something like 14 pages, but never makes reference to the things that they point out just in terms of historical facts with regards to who, you know, were blacks allowed to vote in any of the states and did they participate in ratification? He just completely ignores it. So uh, he, uh, I can't say that he did that with the Northwest Ordinance because I don't, I, don't, I don't recall off the top of my head if he makes reference to it at all, but it would not surprise me if he did. So didn't he, didn't he read his opinion in 57, but wasn't it the following year? That it was, was it 1858 when it was released? Or no, it was released published? a couple months later. Oh, it was. It was the same year. Okay, but it ended yeah. up being. You're right. It was long. Is it 70 some pages? Or uh, I don't remember longer? the number of pages. I just remember I actually at one point in time read every word of it. <laughs> wow. Okay. Good for you. <laughs> yeah, the uh, excerpt that we had, the excerpt we had recommended, I think we we reduced down to about five or six pages. But well, right. I always yeah. tell my students that they I have mercifully excerpted it for them. <laughs> So um, maybe uh, maybe we can talk about um, again. I think we we've sort of captured nicely the sort of political climate going into the case, right? With this over the last 50 years, a, sh a gradual shift toward uh, the idea that there uh, there have to be much greater protections for for slave owners in terms of the new fugitive slave law and and these kinds of things. Why why? So, so, so uh, I think we have a good grasp on why it took so long to get to the Supreme Court, a case like this, but why was it so important for Tawney to issue, I mean, assuming that, that he's not actually correct in his understanding of the Constitution, why would Tawney write an opinion like this? I mean, I, I guess I'm asking, are there political motives behind Tawney's opinion, in your opinion? Well, I think that Tawney thought he could resolve the issue. Mm -hmm. I think Tawney thought that if he handed down a definitive statement on the place of slavery in the nation or in the territories in particular, that that would, that would solve it. I mean, we have to remember the territories are in upheaval at this point. In 1856, you have bleeding Kansas, which is a result of the Kansas-Nebraska Act, which had opened up the territories to allowing people to move there and, and decide for themselves whether they'll have slavery. And people like John Brown and others are bludgeoning each other. And so I think Tawney thought he was doing the nation a service in terms of handing this down. It's going to decide it for all time. And I mean, talking about the political context, one of the most fascinating parts about all of this is that originally the court was going to be a 6-3 decision. And um, it would have looked really bad if the three northerners were against the six southerners. And so the president-elect, James Buchanan, who was a Pennsylvanian, went to an, a, a Supreme Court justice from Pennsylvania named Robert Greer and says to him, you know, hey, can you, can you go ahead and side with 
the Southerners making it a 7-2 decision instead of a 6-3. And so Buchanan knew that Greer was going to do that. And when Buchanan was inaugurated president in March of 1857, part of his inaugural address essentially said something along the lines of, you know, it's understood that event that soon the Supreme Court will hand down a decision settling the slavery issue and we should abide by it, whatever it may be. As a paraphrase. But then a day or two later, Tawney hands down the Dred Scott decision and the president has just told America we should we should abide by this, whatever it may be. Well, Buchanan knew what it was going to be. And it was what Buchanan wanted and it was what Tawney wanted. It was what Southerners wanted. They thought they were working together to resolve this issue. But Northerners like Lincoln look at it and they say, well, there's a conspiracy afoot to spread slavery where the president and members of Congress and the Supreme Court are working together to resolve the issue the way they want it resolved. Yeah, we recall to mind the, the later Lincoln speech. Which is it where he talks about the House Divided uh, Address? The House Divided Speech, where he talks about James and Roger and and, and Stephen and, and Franklin, Stephen, right? Franklin and it's all being in cahoots here and sort of mm -hmm. getting together and sort of planning these things. That's great. Mm -hmm. It's a very conspiratorial speech. I mean, you read it and it kind of fits into the mindset that some historians have had about the paranoid style of American politics. And yet, you look at what was going on, and I think Lincoln was onto something in that speech. Yeah. By the way, Lisa points out that there was a story on NPR this morning about Buchanan uh, being called the worst president because of his role in part in the Dred Scott decision. Mm. Uh, agree? Disagree? He did I, worse things. He did worse things. Yeah, I was going to say the secession crisis was pretty yeah, bad. That was the big, yeah, that was the big dropping of the ball there. Okay. So it's oh, a, I, it's a, oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Luke. No, Luke. Is well, I was going to say, um, uh, I actually did a quick look at my link, my full ex, uh, my full Tani opinion, and he actually does mention the Northwest Ordinance, but he does so in a way that bolsters his own argument. Because remember, he's going to eventually go on to say that the United States Congress doesn't have authority over uh, uh, slavery in the territories. Uh, and he's going to make that argument in part because he doesn't think Congress has authority over territories at all. <laughs> the only territories he thought they had uh, that the Constitution empowered Congress to deal with was the, the territory already owned by the United States at the time, which doesn't include the Louisiana Territory. So when it comes to the Northwest Ordinance, he says, oh, yeah, the Northwest Ordinance that some people claim was passed by the Articles of Confederation Congress they even didn't have authority over that territory. And he uses the term Congress of the States, but he uses it simply in the general understanding of the word Congress, the same way we would use the word assemble or assembly. He said the states decided among themselves what to do with, the Northwest or with that Northwest Territory. But once the US Constitution uh, was established, uh, it had no authority anymore over that territory, and even if they renewed it under the, if they renewed the Northwest uh, Ordinance of 1787, um, that wasn't authority that they had at all. So uh, even though we've wow. assumed that they had it and have been practicing under it all this time, uh, he, he never uh, believed that they had authority over that territory to begin with. That, that's amazing. So just so I understand this, so I'm not misunderstanding it. So Tawney is, is, is essentially saying that an act or an agreement that had arisen under the Articles of Confederation, essentially, right? Over that territory. Over that territory was binding. He did not believe even, that they, go ahead. 
even after the ratification of the Constitution, that act over that territory was binding. He, he, it was already dealt with prior to, con to the Constitution coming into being. So wow. if they decide to wave their wand over it and say, we like what they did, Tani says, you know, that action is essentially moot. In other words, it's already taken wow. care of. Uh, and so we can't use that as a precedent for subsequent regulations in subsequent territory acquired wow. by the United States. Well, and that's wow. such a misreading of the clause because it's in future tense. Congress shall have power in, in Article 4. Yeah, but it's over, over territory that they already possess. That that's an interpretation. That's his interpretation. So he very much circumscribes uh, what authority they have vis-a-vis -vis territories. He, is, he, eventually, he eventually says, and by the way, this is not controversial. In the early decades, there's some, there is some debate over whether the United States has authority to acquire new territory. It, it, that was right. not an open and shut. Right. Not everybody believed that they did. Right. Yeah, and those who did, uh, it, it seems to me that most of them who did say that they could acquire territory uh, applied strict reasons for acquiring territory. So it had to be for the purposes of, say, adding future states uh, or something to that effect. Although I think maybe that's an argument that is that is around toward the more of the progressive era. After yeah, and not to get us too far afield here, but because remember, even Jefferson thinks that what he did was technically unconstitutional when that's they acquired right, Louisiana. Right. So he said, look, I'm really squeamish about this. We need to amend the Constitution. Uh, we've just like in wow. practice discovered something that we really need to have authority over, but it ain't in the deed. So wow. let's change it after the fact. And, you know, you kind of like he's going to throw himself on the, the mercy of the court, which is the court of public opinion. So the Northwest Ord Ordinance was completely illegitimate, unconstitutional, and not applicable at all in the Dred Scott case, according to Tawny. Correct. Wow, that's amazing. So he, so he, Lucas, you've got the full version in front of you. It's been a long time since I've read it too. Does he do that pretty quickly, pretty summarily? Um, no, it's in the last third. Third, okay, all right. I'll have to take a look at that again. That's fascinating. Um, so, uh, so again, it's a really volatile time, as you've been pointing out, and uh, passions are high, running high on this question of slavery. Um, it's probably not an accident that this decision takes place uh, less than three years prior to the opening of hostilities in the Civil War. So Tawney thinks that he is going to settle the question, and at the same time, does he think he's going to somehow assuage the, the, the passions or calm the passions among the American people over this issue as well? I, I think so. Uh, I mean, I agree with John that there are definitely political reasons, uh, rationales for uh, why Tawney assumes uh, the writing of this case rather than leaving it to Justice Nelson. Uh, uh, what, what Tani thinks he's going to do is essentially this, in an analogous way, what Stephen Douglas thought he was going to do with the Nebraska uh, bill passage. In other words, let's not, I mean, slavery is driving people nuts in this country. It's dividing us. And so uh, why don't we just take the, the topic, let's take the issue off the national table. Right. So Stephen Douglas's version of this was called popular sovereignty, or as I teach my students, append the adjective local. Right. So local popular sovereignty. Let the states decide what they're going to do about black people. Uh, are we going to enslave them? Are we going to give them rights or somewhere in between? 
and similarly with the territories. Let the locals who are going to be most affected by this very divisive issue, let them decide what they're going to do about slavery. Takes it off the national table, and that calms the nation down. It promotes unity. And it's, you know, charitably understood, a very kind of statesmanlike move on Stephen Douglas's part. I think Tawney is doing something similar in this case. He says, let's get it off Congress's table. Let's, let's rule in a way that says Congress never had authority over uh, slavery in the territories. Uh, uh, but he goes further, uh, and this is where he, he disagrees with Stephen Douglas. He says, uh, under the Fifth Amendment due process clause, you can't have your life, liberty, or pro uh, property uh, deprived of you without due process. Um, he actually creates a right to slavery, uh, to slaveholding, uh, by an American citizen who takes chattel slavery into a federal territory and essentially says they deserve protection regardless of what Congress said, because by the way, Congress never had authority over uh, uh, the territories in this fashion. So I think wow. they're running somewhat on parallel tracks there and, and both are political moves to try to do something regarding the most divisive and potentially destructive institution, at least in terms of the national debate, uh, and that is slavery. Yeah, so I've always, I that again, there, it strikes me that there are two, almost two parts to the opinion. That is, there's the part yes. that deals with the particular case before him, that is Dred Scott, right? And, right. Um, and we can talk about, uh, if you don't mind here, um, uh, uh, Tawny's logic or his reasoning about why Dred Scott has no right to uh, bring suit before a federal court to begin with. But there's mm -hmm. that second part that you pointed out, Lucas, where Tawny goes on and, right. uh, and says that right to own property and slaves is a firmly and expressly or distinctly and expressly affirmed in the, in the Constitution. Yeah, and, Correct. and that, that really does undermine, as, as you know better than I do, uh, Stephen Douglas's argument for popular sovereignty. And Lincoln, of course, is going to take that and drive it as a, try to drive that as a wedge. That's right. Between them, right, uh, eventually. But... Mm -hmm. um, but what a, how does uh, what is Tawney's what maybe you can walk us through his opinion with regard to Dred Scott and how he comes to the conclusion that Dred Scott cannot be a citizen and therefore cannot even bring suit. So essentially, uh, Tawney is is saying we're going to throw this case back to the states, right? Or are we dismissing the case altogether? John, do you want to do that? Or do well, first I'll say this case involves the territories, really more than the states, I think. Lincoln fears a decision involving the states is coming in the future. But right. in, in answer to your question, Tawney equates the words of the Constitution, we the people of the United States, in the preamble with the word, with the word citizen. And he essentially maintains that African Americans were not part of the people in 1787, and therefore, are not citizens and cannot sue in the federal courts. And so at that moment, now, of course, there's all sorts of problems with that argument. The dissenters and then Lincoln point out that five states in 1787 allowed black men to vote in terms of ratification of the Constitution. In fact, there's uh, historical scholarship on the right to vote that shows that at least nine states permitted black men to vote in, in the 1780s. So blacks were part of the people, but Tawney conveniently ignores those kind of facts. Once Tawney made that, that part of his decision that Dred Scott was not a citizen and could not sue in the federal courts, 
he could have just stopped there because at that point there's nothing else to be decided the case is over right but it's but then he decides to go on because he wants to make a a permanent statement on the nature of slavery in the territories because if he had stopped so if he had stopped there at that first point john he would not really ultimately have settled would he have settled the question no he wouldn't have settled anything other than he would have settled blacks are not citizens it would have settled that question okay okay so um uh, there are a couple of good questions relating to the things you're bringing up. Uh, I think Larry wanted to know, can we talk about, since John, you mentioned some of these uh, contrary historical facts that are in contradiction to what Tawny has cited. Can we talk about some of the points of the dissenters in the case? Do they draw? Do they point out some of these um, uh, errors in Tawny's historical analysis of the of the Constitution? Well, yeah, I mean, you mentioned one of them already, which is uh, Curtis pointing out that uh, five states, including a slaveholding state like North Carolina, actually allowed uh, qualified blacks uh, to vote. Uh, it was Frederick Douglass. I'm glad you brought up, uh, John, about the scholarship regarding actually it was more than five. It was closer to nine. Frederick Douglass claims there were 11 states where <laughs> blacks could actually vote. And I always thought that Frederick Douglass was, was straining there because he has uh, he doesn't have exactly a, a, a Lincolnian interpretation of the Constitution through and through, although it leans more towards Lincoln than clearly uh, Tawny or Stephen Douglas. Uh, so it's good to know that it's actually even more than five, but at least as far as the Massachusetts uh, uh, Justice uh, Benjamin Curtis is concerned, he could at least cite five. And of course, Tawny uh, conveniently just ignores that. He doesn't try to refute it. He just ignores it, pretends that it doesn't exist and that there's just a clear difference of opinion uh, with regards to uh, what states, uh, what, what, what the status, legal status and the civic status of, of blacks is. Uh, the other thing that Curtis uh, does over and over again is he points out the number of ways in which, uh, again, conventionally and throughout the states, it was understood that actions taken in the North by slaves that were de facto acts of manumission if permitted by their owners. And a big one being the fact that uh, Dred Scott married uh, Harriet Jacobs uh, uh, up in, uh, I think, Fort Snelling, and they actually had a kid uh, and two by the time they get back to Missouri. And it, the, the ruling had been, well, if, like in the South, slaves are not allowed to marry. Uh, and now That's there were... Citizenship, right? Right. And, and, and well, the other thing is, yeah, and they don't have, they don't have um, uh, that sort of uh, agency, legal agency, uh, because they are the property of somebody else. But if you were an owner and you took your slave somewhere else and by your allowance or permission, your slave did marry in that state or territory where that was legal, that's you're essentially saying to everybody, I no longer have rights over these people. And so Curtis points out actions like that that were undertaken. I mean, the very fact that this military surgeon took uh, um, when Emerson, who the original owner, or one of the in, in the succession, it's a long succession of owners. Uh, uh, but when Emerson, the military surgeon, took Tawny to uh, took Tawny, yikes, uh, took uh, uh, Dred Scott, Scott right. uh, to Illinois and then to the, the the Wisconsin territory, which eventually became Minnesota. That and when he took up permanent residence, uh, that was an act of manumission. I mean, if Dred Scott wanted to, he could have refused to to go back to Missouri. 
according to the laws or constitution of those states and territories. And he got married. I mean, these actions, all done by the acquiescence of uh, his owner, uh, were essentially acts of emancipation. And Curtis says, look, this is not news. Nothing to see here. This, uh, it's clearly he has to be treated as a free man. Right, but I wonder... Well, one quick thing. Ahead, John, sorry, I know it was just a slip-up, but he didn't marry Harriet Jacobs. That oh, sorry. Whoops, friend. sorry. <laughs> That's another famous... Another sorry. famous slave. Uh, is her name Harriet? Harriet what? Robinson. Thank you. Yeah, 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 let the record show. Right. <laughs> okay. I'm not bringing in these people together. Sorry about that. But but the effect... But you're citing those as... Curtis is citing those as precedent, but, but isn't the effect of Pawnee's argument simply to say that... Yeah, those things may have happened, but that, but that doesn't mean they were constitutional or that they were legal in any sense. So well, what he, he does is kind he, of brush those aside. Um, he brushes them aside by mentioning other practices, uh, more broadly speaking, and at the state level. He gets very detailed. I mean, he piles like lawyers are, are, are want to do the term a fortiori. In other words, I don't know which one of these arguments is going to work, so I'm going to throw them all at you and hope something lands. Um, Tani, that's part of what makes Tani's opinion so long is he goes by state by state. He ignores the, the things that are happening on states that don't favor his position and then mentions all the ones that are. And this comes to the most famous or no notorious passage um, in, in the opinion, which is when he interprets the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, if we can turn to that. Um, he says about the Constitution that, uh, uh, what does he say? We refer to a struggle pact. The statesmen of that day spoke and acted uh, to determine whether the general terms used in the Constitution as to the rights of man and the rights of people was intended to include them or to give them or their posterity the benefit of its provisions. And right after he says that, he says, well, to understand what's going on in the Constitution, let's look at the Declaration. And he cites the Declaration verbatim. You know, the famous equality phrase, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. After that direct quote, his interpretation follows. And he says, the general words above quoted would seem to embrace the whole family, the whole human family. And if they were used in a similar instrument at this day, 1850s, would be so understood. But then he goes on to say, we can't possibly believe that the guys who wrote that actually thought black people were equal. Why? Because look at all these practices with regards to black people that showed, as he sums up uh, most famously to say, uh, oh, where's that language? I should have it memorized, uh, that they had no rights that the white man was bound to respect. So in his interpretation, and by the way, it's an interpretation that most Americans have today. If you ask most Americans today, when the founders wrote all men created equal, did all mean all? They say, well, obviously they didn't because they didn't free their slaves. That's essentially Taney's position. It's emphatically Stephen Douglas's position. And of course, Lincoln rejects that as well as the dissenters. Yeah, I've always, I was always struck by the fact that, I mean, if I follow his reasoning in this, right after that language of the declaration, Lucas, he, he is saying that in order to maintain the honor and integrity yes. of the founders as, as, as thoughtful, honest men, we have to come to the conclusion that they could not have meant to include Africans in, in all men because at the time when they were writing, nobody was of that opinion in, anywhere, in any part of the world, including all of Europe, right? And he says where for a century before, yes. they had simply been regarded as beings of an inferior order and altogether unfit to associate with the white race, either in social or political relations, 
And th- this is where he says, and so far inferior that they had no rights which the white man was bound to respect. And that he was right. justly and lawfully to be reduced to slavery for his benefit. And he was nothing, he was to be thought of as, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, nothing more than an ordinary article of merchandise. And he said right. that was the universal opinion for centuries before the founding, or at least a century, and yes. therefore it must have been the view of the founders as well. Yeah, so he's, that's the part that he, he uses to set up his interpretation of the Constitution and the Declaration. Yes. Amazing, amazing. So, so what he's saying is, um, I think, it, uh, to, to preserve the integrity of the founders, who's kind of ma- he's kind of he thinks he's coming to the defense of the founders here. Mm-hmm. They had to have thought like the rest of the enlightened world at this time with regard to slaves or Africa. Yeah, and, and let's make his argument as strongly as he makes it, because then what does he do after he makes that statement about kind of universal public opinion and then what the founders thought? He goes on to cite you know, the non-importation clause of the Constitution and the fugitive slave clause. So he says, see, da-da, exhibit A, exhibit B. See, if the founders uh, thought differently than the world, with regards to a white attitude towards black people, then why are these provisions in the Constitution? So he uses those compromises in the Constitution as if they were categorical endorsements of this worldwide opinion with regards to the inferiority of black people. Yeah, that's amazing. And so he comes to the conclusion, um, this is maybe halfway through the excerpt, about five, page five or so on the excerpt. What the construction was at that time we think um, oh wait, we, uh, that wasn't what I was looking for. Upon full, conf- uh, sorry, upon full and careful consideration of the subject, yes, the court is of the opinion that upon the facts stated in the plea, in the abatement, Dred Scott was not a citizen of Missouri within the meaning of the Constitution of the United States, because because it was not the original understanding of the Constitution of the, of the United States. So in a certain sense, Pawnee is kind of like an originalist. I don't want to confuse him with modern originalism, of course. But right. But he's saying our standard has to be the Constitution as it was originally understood at the time of ratification. Well, I would qualify that by say by saying he's feigning originalism, but as Lincoln and the dissenters point out, uh, he's really ignoring the uh, the framers' intention in a lot of way, and the and the facts, the historical facts of what these words meant or who was allowed to vote in 1787. And you know, it's interesting, as, as you both were just talking, I was thinking about Alexander Stevens's cornerstone address. Yes. Stevens, of course, was a Georgian who had served in Congress with Lincoln in the 1840s and would go on to become the vice president of the Confederacy. And in March of 1861, he delivers a speech sort of saying why the South was seceding. And he, he points out his argument is the founders got it wrong. They said the great truth was that all men are created equal. Our nation, he says, the Confederacy in 1861 is the first nation founded on the great truth that the Negro is inferior to the white man. So uh, I'd never really thought about it within this context before. But then Stevens, who's a Confederate leader, rejects Tawney's reading and and accepts Lincoln's reading of the founding. Yeah, that's fascinating. Tawney is saying the founders were right, and I'm just upholding the views of the founders on slavery. Yeah, right. Amazing. So, um, so I, I'd like to, I'd like to really, I, I'd like, I think we should talk about Lincoln's criticism of the decision here at some point. We have uh, about 20 minutes or so left. 
But uh, Stacy has submitted a question having to do with the second part of the decision. She wants to know, does in the Dred Scott decision, Pawnee actually go so far as to say that, that even the states cannot prohibit the ownership of slaves? Does he actually go that far? Because I know that's the... No, right. He, he doesn't go that far, but Lincoln fears, Lincoln and other Northern Republicans fear that, that there will be another Dred Scott decision coming in a year or two that will make that case. Okay. But he hints at it. He, he doesn't he not hint at it, but doesn't he doesn't Lincoln say that he takes a step in that direction that will make it easier for a future case to build on this case as a kind of precedent? Right. Okay. Okay. Um, so we we you both brought up Lincoln. Um, what is Lincoln? It, it's me and Lucas. We have to bring up Lincoln. <laughs> no, right. And I and I, and I, I, I this is the speech by Lincoln. The speech on the Dred Scott decision is a is a is a fascinating speech for a number of reasons. Um, one, because I think, as you both have alluded to, Lincoln feels the need to come to the defense of the founders in a sense, right? Um, he and, does. And what he what he views as a more honest assessment of the founders' views of slaves slavery. Yeah, I, I think that's a good um, a place to jump in, is because as Jonathan uh, just mentioned, um, Tani gives a version of original intent jurisprudence to justify uh, his opinion. And Lincoln has a different understanding of the founders. Uh, uh, his understanding is that, uh, that what they originally intended can't simply be seen or understood by the fact that they allowed or permitted uh, black people to continue to be enslaved. So let me just read a, a portion. This is the paragraph that begins, Chief Justice Taney, in his opinion in the Dred Scott case, etc. He goes on to associate Judge Douglas with the opinion that, look, to have the right understanding of the founders, if there's a contradiction between their principles and their practice, we should see uh, how to make them fit. And, and so if all men are created equal is what they said, but they didn't really treat everybody equally. Who didn't they treat equally? Black people. Therefore, they couldn't be included in the statement, all men are created equal. It must mean all white men. Lincoln says, are you sure you want to make that argument? You're going to put all your eggs in that basket? Okay, look what they also didn't do. And here's that wonderful sentence. Now this grave argument comes to just nothing at all by the other fact. In other words, let's not be selective with our use of facts here. They did not at once or ever afterwards, his emphasis, or ever afterwards, actually place all white people on an inequality with one or another. And so if you're thinking, well, clearly, you know, they thought blacks were inferior because they allowed them to be continued in slavery. And once Jefferson penned and the Second Continental Congress approved, uh, uh, that what the ultimate version was, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. Uh, what Lincoln says is, Huh, you think that means white people? So remind me again how many, uh, let's just stick with men here and not women. How many white males were allowed to vote, uh, right. whether it was during the Revolutionary War or in the late 1780s? Uh, the fact of the matter is uh, only a minority of white people could actually had the full complement of civil and political rights uh, in their various states. So if you're making that argument, it actually proves too much uh, it actually proves that there was only a small portion of white people who were, quote unquote, created equal. According to this argument, we've got to judge their principles by their practices. And then he goes on to explain why it was 
that not only blacks weren't uh, treated equally right away, but nor were whites. He said they had no power to confer such a boon. Uh, so we can unpack that if you want. But essentially, Lincoln says, no. I'll take that argument and, and I'll raise you. <laughs> right. No, that's, a, the, you know, by the way, that, po that point about not having the power to do it, that's a point that is often overlooked, I think, in a lot of um, contemporary criticisms of the founders. Why didn't they simply snap their fingers somehow? And yes. Yeah, I mean, come on. That's to ignore, uh, although, you know, it's not to say that we're <laughs> – you simply exonerate them entirely of these things, but, but no. you know, in the in the political realm, there are limits to the possible, especially in a in a regime that is founded on one of popular opinion uh, or that takes popular opinion into consideration. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and the way I explain this to my students is that the flip side of the equality coin is consent. Uh, yes, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, created. They're not granted equality by their government. They're actually born. It's their birthright that they have the equal possession of rights uh, that any human being has. Now, the rub, of course, is in a free society, you have to ask people's permission as to how they're going to secure these rights. Uh, and as soon as you bring in consent, which the only legitimate government um, uh, has to be based on consent, at least that's the argument of the Declaration of Independence, uh, the fact of the matter is not everybody uh, expresses an opinion simply based on you know, pure reason and logic, that their own self-interest, their own passions, their own prejudices uh, are involved, and uh, that's what complicates uh, the enforcement. And so as Lincoln puts it, he said, they meant simply to declare the right so that the enforcement, which of course is the product of consent, uh, of it might follow as fast as circumstances should permit. And the, the major circumstance that I point out in, on July 4th, 1776 is we aren't even ruling ourselves yet. Uh, it's right. uh, it's going to take not just a few more days, but several more years before the surrender at Yorktown and a couple of more for the Treaty of Paris. And so we're already into the 1780s there. And so uh, circumstances like war uh, complicate things, to state, to, to put it lightly. Yeah, so I love the way, I love the way Lincoln puts this uh, right after that, Lucas. They meant simply to declare the right, as you said. They meant to set up a standard maxim for free society, which should be familiar to all and revered by all, constantly looked to, constantly labored for, and even though never perfectly attained, constantly approximated, and thereby constantly spreading and deepening its influence and augmenting the happiness and value of life to all people of all colors. That's the key term, I think, right there, uh, everywhere, right? Mm -hmm. So but so that leads me back then to another, uh, I think, um, critique that Lincoln is making of Pawnee. Lincoln is saying the founders intended to make a statement of principle about equality that should, that should spread and deepen and become more real as circumstances allowed over time. So the idea was that over time, um, uh, slavery would, would be on the decline, hopefully, and liberty for all would be on the increase. And that therefore life for all, including slaves, according, uh, uh, I should say former slaves, but uh, life for all, including African Americans, would, would, would become better. So, but Tawney is saying, is Tawney actually is kind of agreeing with that, isn't he, in his decision when he says today, if we were to read the words all men are created equal, in our day, our inclination is to say somehow that they should apply to everybody. I'm not asking the question. I'm not asking my question very well. There seems to be a contradiction in the way Tawney's thinking about it. Tawney seems to be saying that, that opinions of Americans regarding slaves 
or slavery have improved to the point that there are more oh. people in the country saying right, that, right. that all men created are created equal actually does include more men. Right. Tawny and, is saying, and I'm just Tawny is saying that that in that sense opinions may have have really shifted away from the idea that he claims the founders had that slaves are simply property and not in any way equal to others and uh, in, in terms of their liberty. Yeah, Lincoln and Lincoln, of course, emphatically in that same speech, disagrees with Taney. He 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 says Taney thinks uh, uh, a conventional white opinion, if you will, uh, to be direct about it, has actually improved with regards to um, uh, black people. And he says Taney is just flat out wrong. In fact, the trend is in the opposite direction, as he puts it. All the powers of Earth seem rapidly combining against him. And so, and then he, the very next paragraph, which is one sentence, it is grossly incorrect to say or assume that the public estimate of the Negro is more favorable now than it was at the origin of the government. I want, we have to just stop and let that sink in. It is incredible that Lincoln is actually making the claim that the founders, even though they were surrounded by slaves, actually had a more favorable opinion about humanity, including blacks. In other words, what is possessed by every human being, the rights of the individual, as Lincoln goes on to say, that the founders, at a time when slavery was essentially legal in all the, the colonies and states, actually had a better idea and a, uh, of what every human being deserved, the equal protection of the rights, than Americans several generations later in the 1850s, uh, that is, it's yeah, that is, it's truly astounding to 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 see Lincoln stand up to Tani and say, uh, "Do you read the paper? Yeah, <laughs> uh, right. Have you seen these laws that have been passed recently? Are you yeah. kidding me? Uh, there was a movement, uh, a movement towards emancipation among those slaveholding found, uh, founders. Were of the original 13 colonies, then states, actually six of them emancipated slaves." and they became free states. He says, we have not seen that like since. In other words, states not only are not trending in that direction, states that had slaves are now getting rid of them. He says, we, we can't even see that in Kentucky. When, if Clay can't pull that off, his beau ideal of a statesman, if Clay couldn't even get their legislature to pass legislation for gradual emancipation, you know, where could, what's gonna happen in Alabama, Mississippi, uh, South Carolina? He's like, there's no way, we're actually worse on the principle of liberty. We are not what we were, he says to this uh, Kentucky judge in 1855. Uh, Lincoln is extremely pessimistic uh, about the trend and, and he actually thinks things were better, it, oddly enough, at a, in a day and age when uh, slavery, at least according to law, was, was practically legal everywhere. Yeah, so that's, there's this great paragraph you were pointing to. It starts, with, it starts with, in these the chief justice does not directly assert but plainly assumes that the fact that the public estimate of the black man is more favorable now than it was in the days of the revolution. And I guess jumping ahead, this line always stood out to me. After he goes through, as you were saying, Lucas, all the, the, the changes in, in the, the legal attitude towards slavery, he concludes, all the powers of the earth seem rapidly combining against him. Mammon is after him. Ambition follows and philosophy follows. And the theology of the day is fast joining the cry. Yeah. That's, that's the state of public opinion in Lincoln's day. Contrary yep. to what Tawny is saying. Yeah, yeah I, I should point out here, uh, I hope this doesn't get us too far afield, but uh, uh, in 1858, right, a year after the, the Dred Scott opinion, Lincoln's got his famous debates with Stephen Douglas. Um, 
Lincoln is uh, trying there um, at a time when, you know, color uh, prejudice against blacks in, in Illinois is, is almost pervasive, except in the very northern portion. He has to, you know, be very deft in terms of how he refers to, you know, you know, rights of, of nature as opposed to civil and political rights, uh, because of course blacks don't have uh, political rights at all and very few civil rights. Um, Lincoln actually constantly refers to the rights that they have by nature. Uh, and he, he points that out as the ground of anybody's rights. And, and that's his attempt to try to at least reverse the trend which is, is uh, the, the belief that um, blacks don't have any rights except the ones that whites want them to have, which aren't really rights then. Those are just privileges and they can remove them whenever they want. Uh, so people have really difficulty with Lincoln when they say, well, how come he doesn't come out for black voting? Or why doesn't he come out with you know, more full complement of civil rights? Uh, if Lincoln can't even get whites in the North to agree that blacks have rights by nature that de deserve protection, he can't even start the conversation uh, on uh, these more technical uh, questions, uh, again, questions that are, are, have to be addressed in the court of public opinion with regards to whether blacks should be given the right to vote or serve on juries where a white person is a defendant, whether they can even serve in the militia, which they cannot do in uh, Illinois. In the mid-1850s in Illinois, they actually passed a law that some other states had on the books as well, banning the emigration of black people into their state. That was the state of public opinion. And so you try <laughs> uh, in that situation. Uh, and this is a free state, Illinois. Uh, you try. Uh, well, in that and can I condition. point out that if you violated that law, if you were a free black person who immigrated into Illinois, you would be arrested and fined, I think, $50. And if you couldn't afford to pay the fine, you would be sold on the auction block to someone who would purchase your labor for a set period of time to pay the fine. And so uh, he's wow. living in a state where there really is unfree labor of African Americans, even in the 1850s. Incredible. Right. And as Lucas says, if that's the state of opinion in a free state, that's, uh, that's very telling about the, uh, about the rest of the country. And that's what makes it so remarkable. I mean, I, I taught this speech in a class last week, and one of my students was really kind of put off by what Lincoln's saying, because he's saying, well, we're not all equal in all respects, and isn't that a little racist? And then, well, sure, if you judge him by the standards of our time, he says some things that we wouldn't say today, but if you think about him within the context in which he was operating, and he's saying he's making incredible arguments, and Lucas pointed out about the all men, but if you look at this speech, Twice he uses a black woman as an example of someone who possesses the rights of life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. And I always love to point out to my students, you know, if you were to think, who is the lowest of the low in 19th century America? It's going to be a black woman because she has no rights as an African-American or a slave. And she's second class citizen, if at all, because she's female. And yet mm -hmm. Lincoln holds out black women and black girls as examples of people who, who possess the same rights. He says, as, as all of you in the audience, they mm -hmm. are equal to you in their right to earn, eat the bread that they earn. That, that is a wonderful point. Uh, I, I had not noticed that before or thought of it in that context. But again, the circumstances, we've been talking about the circumstances in which uh, Lincoln has been giving these speeches. Um, and you're reminding me, uh, of when Lincoln and Douglas 
Stephen Douglas get into the debates, Douglas says repeatedly, I can't wait to trot him down to Egypt, right? He, don't, he wants to get him in that, in that even more extreme southern portion of Illinois. Cairo, Cairo. Illinois. Cairo, right? Yeah, Cairo. Well, no, they pronounce, Cairo. It, they pronounce it Cairo, but it's, okay. yeah, it's Cairo. That's the Egyptian yeah, illusion. The Egyptian, yeah, the, right. So, but, but if I can get him down into that portion of Illinois, I want to see whether he says the same sorts of things, which, and Lincoln essentially does. Uh, well, more, more importantly, I would think is even if Lincoln doesn't uh, say it as emphatically as he does uh, in the northern, more you know, freedom-loving area, Lincoln points out, dude, these things are printed in newspapers, so I could be on the moon and they'll st and, and say everything I want at the top of my lungs. Uh, it'll be it's in the papers, so the people down south already know what I think. Uh, is that a quote? People. Did Lincoln say, dude? Uh, <laughs> we'll have to go back and read this. Thanks, speech. John. Yeah, it's probably in there somewhere. But I did. I, I'm glad we're talking about this because I was going to raise this question of how Lincoln's speech on the Dred Scott decision affected the um, not only the debates uh, for the for the Senate race in '58, but also perhaps the 1860 election, because we know we know that um, in the '58 Senate debates, Stephen or uh, yeah, Stephen Douglas made a big deal out of Lincoln's criticism of a Supreme Court decision, right? Yes, and mm -hmm. so much so that Lincoln had Lincoln felt obligated uh, to defend his criticism um, of a Supreme Court opinion. Uh, yeah, let me say so something. In the speech. Yeah, let me ahead, just please. say something briefly on that, and then I'll let John chime in because I've been talking a lot. But I want I want to make sure people don't miss this. Remember, notice if what the court said is correct, and Congress doesn't have the power to regulate slavery, even to the point of banning it in the territories. What has he just done to the Republican Party? This party that's only been in existence as a national party for one year, 1856, and at the state level for, you know, since 54, but not widespread. It, Lincoln's not even a Republican until 1856. So one year after they've run their first nominee for president, and they lost, but they made a good show of it, Taney essentially says the Republican Party has no reason for being anymore because they're the one plank that has coalesced them most solidly around uh, the, the one issue is no extension of slavery into the territories, meaning Congress has every right and they should exercise their right to ban slavery. Tani says, no, they don't. Uh, he's essentially uh, basically said the Republican Party doesn't have to exist anymore. And they say, uh, no, we have every right to do so. And we're going to make speeches and rallies, et cetera. So, uh, they have a really tall mountain to climb with the court already saying they essentially don't have uh, uh, their original raison d'etre uh, as a party uh, to, to, to rally the troops around. Yeah. Well, that's fascinating because that explains not only why, uh, I mean, another of uh, Lincoln's motives in this speech is one, he's going after the, do the doctrines regarding slavery that certainly come out of Tawny's opinion. But there's a, but there, I hadn't thought of this, Lucas. Uh, he has to challenge the validity of the decision. Yes. For the reasons you just mentioned, he has to he has to point out that look, um, why are we? Why should we? It's almost like a rallying cry. Now that I think of it in the terms you were just describing, uh, why why should we not accept this decision as final? Right. Because if because if by the way if people just acquiesce as Stephen Douglas is saying, you know, essentially the. Supreme Court has spoken. That's the final word on things. If they do acquiesce, you're right, Lucas. I had not thought of this. The Republican Party has no constitutional ground to stand on for most, if not all, of their of their their platforms. 
the link. John, do you want to talk more? Yeah, John, do you want to talk more about uh, um, this debate that Lincoln has with Douglas with regards to the Republicans' resistance to the decision and, and the reasons why Lincoln thinks they're not resisting the decision? Right. And this is one thing that's important to realize is that the, the jurisdiction of the Supreme Court has changed from 1857 to today. Prior to 1925, the court had very little uh, power in terms of deciding what cases it would hear. Today, the court is, has a lot of room to decide which cases they'll take and which ones they won't take. In 1857, they essentially had to take any case that came before them. And so from Lincoln's perspective, there will be more cases. So the Dred Scott case pertains only to Dred Scott and his family. And there's going to be another, we're going to make sure another case comes that will then try to win. And and so we need to keep in mind in the historical context that today, if a case like Dred Scott came before the Supreme Court, that would be it. We, there wouldn't be another case, most likely, dealing with the same matter. Whereas in 1857, Lincoln could say, okay, well, we'll we will accept this as the decision of the court in, in regards to these litigants, but we won't accept it as having longstanding precedential value. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, that's very insightful. Um, so, uh, um, does does Lincoln's resistance to the Dred Scott speech then bolster his position among Republicans? Does this in any way bring attention to him and and potentially uh, put him in mind as a as a uh, as a leader of the Republican Party, possibly even a future presidential candidate? Do we have any evidence for that? Um, I, I usually would, uh, I quickly fold in um, his debates with Stephen Douglas, because yeah. those, okay. those certainly got the attention of folks back east, uh, and in particular, uh, at a time when uh, guys were actually contemplating supporting a Republican, uh, movers and shakers uh, in the Northeast were actually contemplating out loud supporting Stephen Douglas, not because, uh, in spite of the fact that he was a Democrat and the, the leading Democrat in the nation, but because he joined them in the fight against the Lecompton Constitution in Kansas because he didn't think it was an accurate reflection of local popular sovereignty. Right. Uh, the Republicans liked that because it, he was, uh, for all intents and purposes, preventing a slave constitution from being imposed on the population of Kansas. They looked at the end only, and Lincoln had to point out, look, don't, don't you know, attach your tail to Douglas's kite. He doesn't care a whit about Republican principles. Uh, if you make him our standard bearer, uh, you, you're actually uh, going to undermine our attempts to try to coalesce around principles that would enable us to be at least a, a counterpoise to the, the principles of the Democratic Party, which are uniformly now in favor of, uh, or at least trending towards uh, being uh, a party in favor of slavery. Douglas professes that he's neutral on the question, of course, and of course, Lincoln's part of Lincoln's greatness is showing speech after speech why being neutral on slavery actually promotes the spread of slavery. Right. Yeah. So I would say it, it's not just Dred Scott, uh, his speech on Dred Scott. It's it's the the contest uh, in 1858, which, by the way, was was uh, a break with tradition. Remember, at the time, people didn't vote for the U.S. Senate uh, directly. It wasn't a popular election. Their state legislators appointed them. And so what you would do, like Lincoln did back in 1854, was to wait for that legislature to be chosen in the fall. Well, in other words, the votes are in the fall. And then in January, when the legislatures convene to 
pick who their senator is going to be, the one senator that's up for election. They have staggered elections, of course. Uh, that's when Lincoln campaigned and tried to become and came within five votes of becoming a U.S. senator in 1855. Come 1858, the Republican Party takes no chances. They actually hold a convention and they choose unanimously Abraham Lincoln in June of 1857. Um, I'm sorry, in, in 1858 uh, to uh, 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 unanimously vote for Lincoln as their standard bearer to campaign before the fall elections and essentially turn those state, that state election into a referendum on or a plebiscite on who gets to pick the next senator. Is it going to be a majority Democratic state legislature or majority Republican state legislature? And alas, even though the Republicans win statewide in terms of voting simply uh, the numbers, uh, for a number of reasons, the, the Democrats still hold on to the state house and then, of course, uh, reappoint Stephen Douglas. Yeah, that's, that's very well put. Um, we've come to the end of our time, but if you don't mind, one last question from Kelly. Uh, wants to know if there's a connection between all of this and the Freeport Doctrine? Sure. Well, um, the Freeport Doctrine comes later, but that's where Douglas says that states can pass unfriendly legislation towards slavery. Right. Um, and that's ultimately what sinks Douglas nationally with the Democratic Party because Southern Democrats will not go for him. So I don't think there's an exact connection in terms of uh, the Dred Scott case, but there is a direct connection in terms of Lincoln is able to win the presidency in part because the Democratic Party divides in 1860 and they divide in large measure because of Douglas's statement there. Is the yep. Freeport Doctrine an attempt of Douglas to get around the, uh, Lincoln, Lincoln's uh, uh, claim that Tawney's argument uh, affirming the right to property in the territories and slaves undermines his, his notion of local popular sovereignty? That is, Lincoln says, look, Tawney says um, uh, the right to property is, is, is affirmed by the Constitution and Lincoln suggests, doesn't he, that that undermines the possibility that the people can even vote down slavery in a territory. That's correct. So he, he, he is, is saying, look, Douglas can't have it both ways. He can't say the Republicans are revolutionary and resistors because they don't agree with the Dred Scott opinion, but I do. You know, I, Stephen Douglas, love uh, the Supreme Court and what they say goes, even though that contradicts what he has done in the past, uh, the, the great supporter of Andrew Jackson that he was. Uh, so when Douglas turns around and says, oh, and is forced by Lincoln, and he actually said it prior to the Freeport debate in 1858, and, Doug and Douglas actually says this to Lincoln, he says, Lincoln, you know what I think about this. You know, why are you making me answer this again? And of course, Lincoln's like, what? what? Of course he's trying to make him say it again. Uh, he wants him to be explicit about this. He wants him to say, no, you actually are resisting the Supreme Court case even more than the Republicans. In fact, you're like the abolitionists. The abolitionists... Um, in, in the face of the Fugitive Slave Act, that's a national congressional act, are promoting these personal liberty laws at the state level to interfere with that. Uh, you don't like what they're doing? You consider them rebels? What are you doing with your policy of local popular sovereignty, the Freeport document saying, actually push come to shove if the locals really don't like on the ground to have slavery, they could pass unfriendly legislation, right? The police powers to promote the safety, health, welfare, and morals of the community. Douglas puts all his eggs in that basket. His, his claim to fame is popular sovereignty. Let the people decide. And that means the local people. And Lincoln forces him to say it in all capital letters. 
And in fact, the following year, in a, in a fair, a well uh, uh, publicized letter to a guy named Dorr, D-O-R-R, Douglas says, I will stand, do you want me to be uh, the, the, the nominee of the Democratic Party, which of course he's been running for for a while, uh, I will do so except if you make a, a demand upon me to have to promote and endorse a federal slave code. In other words, to put teeth into the bite of the, the Dred Scott case. If you say I have to pledge ahead of time to get the nomination, I have to pledge to support a plank of the Democratic Party that will demand of Congress a law applying to all the, the territories protecting slavery, find somebody else. And that is incredible from Stephen Douglas because he really wants to be president. He came close in 56 and here's his chance. Buchanan has already said he's only gonna serve one term. It's his oyster if he wants it. And he says, not if it makes me back off of popular sovereignty. Wow, that's amazing. Well, uh, again, I'm, I, I thank you both so much. We've gone over time a little bit, and I apologize. It's been fun. That, but it's been fantastic. A lot of great things to think about. Jonathan, Lucas, thank you again so much. And I hope this has been of, 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 of use and help to, to our teachers, especially who are going to teach these courses to their own. Great. So, uh, I've learned a lot, as always, from, from the two of you, and I thank you very much. So Thanks, John. I, Thanks, Chris. Thank, thank you. you very much. Yeah, and we'll talk to you guys soon. Okay. Hopefully, we'll do this again in the future if you're willing. Cool. Excellent. Um, just let me remind, uh, and also let me thank the panel, uh, the participants, for submitting some great questions. That yes, on a Saturday. Woohoo! Yeah. Right. Pretty good for a Saturday. That's really good. So I'll also remind you about the email you'll receive with a link for the certificate of participation. Uh, also, please take time to fill out that short survey so that we can schedule our webinar for the spring. And uh, consider uh, looking into a MAG course, uh, which is very much like this. Lucas and Jonathan both teach regularly in our master's program. And, uh, and uh, if you like the conversation today, this is what you can kind of expect in, in our courses. So um, our next Saturday webinar will be November 19th. It'll be on Brown v. Board of Education with, uh, with uh, a little bit of Plessy v. Ferguson brought in. And we'll be joined by Emily Hess and Jason Stevens, both of Ashland University. So I look forward to seeing you all then. Until then, take care. Thanks. Thanks. Signing off. Lucas, fantastic. Thank you for listening to another TAH.org podcast. You can find archives of all our previous programs, as well as information about future programs at TAH.org slash webinars, or on iTunes by searching for teachingamericanhistory.org.